3: Good morning, New York. This is the to Catch Roundtable trying Catch the Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. What's going on in New Jersey? Well, we got Eric Schuffler to give us a report, Paul Zuber to give us a report on business uh, practices in New York State, Steve Cates on what's going on in the skies, Governor David Patterson. Governor Hoko is going to come on and, and give us an update of the state of the state. Let's start off with what's going on in our real estate community in New York with Michael
1: Stoller. Good morning. This is Mike Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. The meatpacking district, an area that many years ago really had meat. They were slaughtering the meat. They were doing business. I remember going back that Bankers Trust had a a stronghold in the neighborhood. But today I've been involved with an individual who's been involved with the Meatpacking District for, let's say, his entire professional career. I have Jared Epstein, who happens to be a principal at Aurora Capital. So tell me about how you got involved with the Meatpacking District and what has happened over the
4: past 20 years. First of all, thank you, Michael, for having me. It's always an honor to um, be in your presence. My involvement with the Meatpacking District started back in 2001 before nine eleven i was a um i was a nightclub promoter and marketer of restaurants and lounges um and the meatpacking packing was the place to be it had a rest- uh, had a restaurant called um florent which I frequented with my uh my girlfriend's parents who were just hip and cool and then I would go to Lotus at night for the nightclub which was really hot and then of course there was Pastis and marked it was just an amazing neighborhood so what happened? So the next thing that happened, I got into real estate a few years later. I had a dog. I had a new girlfriend. We were walking the dog in the neighborhood in the meatpacking district from Soho through meatpacking and then back down to Soho. On our walk back down to Soho from 14th and 9th, we passed 13th and 9th and saw a sign literally being, going, being put up on the building on the corner of 13th and 9th. It said, triple net lease available with a name and a number, Alf Neyman, and some 212 number. I called him that night, maybe at like 6, 7 o'clock, as soon as I saw the sign. I said, uh, Alf, nice to meet you. It's Jared Epstein with Aurora. You know, we own some real estate in Soho. I have a family that I'm partners with that it's very well capitalized. Not well known, but very well capitalized. And we'd be interested in acquiring the building through a leasehold. I guess that's what you're looking for. Oh, no, no, no. We're not looking for a developer. He says we're looking for a luxury retail tenant. I said, okay, that's great, but the buildings are in disrepair. I'm very familiar with what was in it previously, which was a hog-cutting plant and then a bakery. It's been sitting there vacant for maybe 10, 20 years because there was a tenant not paying rent and actually living in the building as well. And I don't foresee a retailer coming along and redeveloping this property for themselves to then pay you rent. It's going to cost them God knows how many millions of dollars, how much time. They're going to have to go to landmarks. I just don't think it's going to happen. If it proves that I'm right, please give me a call. And I would continue to call him, like, every few weeks. Alf, what's going on? What's the latest? Can I, get, can I meet with the owner? I want to explain to her, like, why we believe we're the right people to take over the property in terms of a long-term lease instead of a tenant. Eventually, we finally got the meeting with Deanna Durso and her mother, Marie DeLuca, God rest her soul and deanna's daughters so maria's granddaughters and we really built a very strong like almost like familial relationship within the first hour of being together um i would say talking about my career and um what has led me to be here with you on your show it's really always been about relationship building with me um i genuinely care about people. I don't have a filter, which sometimes creates like incredible relationships, it could also create animo- animosity, sorry, with people, but I'm real. Um and I connect with people deeply very quickly. Um and that's what happened here with the family. Within a few weeks we're working on the long-term lease. Um, things, you know, diverted a little bit because Louis Vuitton, LVMH, came to the table and actually wanted to take the property and redevelop it. Um, they changed their tune. Mr. Arnaud wanted to buy it at the end of the day. And then we got our deal back on track and um, signed the ground lease probably in late 2009 or maybe early 2010. So when would you say the major developments began in the meatpacking district? What year is it? I would say the impetus to the change of the neighborhood really started with Irwin Cohen back when he bought the building which became the Chelsea Market, the old Nabisco factory, I believe it was right. um so that started it. He had an incredible vision definitely a visionary guy uh, I'm honored that I got to know him. God rest his soul as well. Too many people <laughs> are going um in this story. He created something really dynamic and special, brought a ton of foot traffic and awareness to the neighborhood. Then Paul Pariser and um, Charlie right. bought uh, 111 8th Avenue, brought Google. And they bought it because yeah. they liked the... The power in the in the, the building. I was going to okay. say that, right? Fiber optics. That's right. It was, so it, was uh, it was a former port authority building, so it had little. I think that, I don't know if they knew that at the time. Maybe it's the case. I I've never spoken to Paul about that. Like what made him acquire it? I know that it was through the RTC, so it was like very. Uh, as, as he economical. said on my first TV show, sure. If you can get a dollar increase in rent,
1: it's worth it. And he got more than a dollar increase in <laughs> rent. <laughs> that makes he sense. Did very, a lot has happened over the years, and you've been very involved. I'd like to thank Jared Epstein for being here today, and I'll see you next week. You
4: got it.
3: This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to the Round Roundtable. New
5: Jersey, each day your beauty shines from farmland to the shore.
1: New Jersey.
3: With us today is Eric Shuffler, and uh, he is our partner in the Ferry Hawk Stadium in, in Staten Island, and also, one of the biggest lobbyists and business people in New Jersey, uh, Eric, give us an update. What the heck is going on in New Jersey? There's so many things going on, and a lot of people just want an update.
6: John, it is a time of intrigue in New Jersey politics. We haven't seen kind of drama like this in New Jersey in a long, long time. You know, our, our one of our sitting senators, Bob Menendez, who's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has been charged. Uh, by the U.S. government with several crimes, and his seat is up for re-election this year. And he is still running, and he has not dropped out of the race. And he is being challenged by several people, and not just several anybody, several very prominent people. Andy Kim, who's a two-term congressman from southern New Jersey, outside of uh, some of the Philadelphia suburbs, well-respected, diplomatic background, is running against the governor's wife, Tammy Murphy. Tammy is very substantive, you know, very strong on policy, you know, a proven record on maternal health and environment. And we have this heavyweight clash going on in a New Jersey primary that we have not seen in a very, very long time.
3: You know, uh, I met her, uh, the governor's uh, wife, Tammy, uh, and uh, she's a very nice lady. And uh, they've accused her of being a Republican. She was a Republican many,
6: many years ago, and they have brought that up. You know, I think the larger challenge here and we'll get to there was a big kind of one of the counties had a had their election this week. You know, but what you have here is a case of the establishment candidate which is Tammy Murphy against what is people view as kind of an upstart congressman. So, you know, you have this battle of kind of the people who are almost in many ways trying to rebel against the power structure and exert themselves on behalf of uh, what they believe a very progressive outsider candidate and it's become a very interesting narrative with a lot of the political leaders who have known Tammy Murphy for a long time and have seen, you know, the policy weight and policy chops she brings to the table, you know, against a lot of rank and file Democrats who maybe don't want to kind of some of political leadership's kind of anointing candidates and they're fighting back. So you have a, you have a real fight going on in the state now. And it's, it's very interesting because you have two, you know, two candidates, each with good records, who are strong and it, it's going to be a battle for the next two months and when is the primary? It is in the uh, first week in June, but we had our first kind of result this week in Monmouth County, which is the county where the first lady and the governor live, and Andy Kim won, and that was a you know a surprising result, and he won by a decent amount fifty seven percent to thirty nine percent So that wow. generated some momentum and some concern in some quarters. But it is very early. The big counties are, you know, coming up still. And those big counties enjoy, you know, First Lady Tammy Murphy enjoys a lot of support. And you know, I think what's so interesting about this for New Jersey the voters is you have two really good candidates, very different. And that choice of the policy expertise that a Tammy Murphy brings to the table, you know, the experience that Andy Kim has in Congress, you know, the reputation he's trying to build as someone who is more progressive, more of an outsider against what people are perceiving to be. You know, more of the you know the insider candidate is really interesting, and I think you know how Tammy Murphy comes out of this will be fun to watch, and I think she's going to come out really strong, having seen what happened in Monmouth County. I mean, we all have losses in life; it happens. Partly is what we do with those losses, and how we learn from it. And I think you're going to see a much improved, stronger Tammy Murphy campaign coming out of this. But it's going to be a battle.
3: Does Menendez have any kind of shot? Is he in the primaries himself? He- He is
6: still in the primary, John, um, which is really interesting. He is not going away. He's not giving any indication that he's going away. He is saying he is innocent of these charges, and he is going to fight these charges. And When you have a sitting senator in a primary, just the name recognition that comes from his long, long service in the state, it's a wild card. So you have this race where it's very hard to predict how it's going to play out because you have a sitting senator. And if he stays in, his name recognition that people might be drawn to. You have the governor's, what you know, First Lady Tammy Murphy with strong name recognition, strong policy support, and a sitting congressman. You know, I don't remember any time where you have three people of this political heft in a race at the same time in a primary.
3: It's going to be an interesting year. Anything else going on? When is the governor's race in New Jersey? The so
6: governor's race is 2025. So it, well normally all the political intrigue would be around In open seat, Governor Murphy's term limited out, so it is an open seat. And open seats in New Jersey are competitive. You know, Republicans, while they've struggled to win, you know, congressional and Senate seats, they've, they've put up good races and won the governor's race. So this is a big race. Democrats have been in control of eight years, and everyone is now focused on this immediate Senate race, while the governor's race, a little bit on the back burner. So you have that going on, John. The governor Murphy presents his budget speech at the end of February. So that outlines the state spending, you know, and obviously whether that has tax increases or not impacts the Senate race. How the New Jersey budget plays out, you know, people can take out their opinions on that when they vote in the New Jersey primary in June. So there's a lot of different things that are connected to each other, a lot of people watching and a lot of political, you know, vulnerabilities from each of these decisions that are going to be made. And they all affect each other. Fascinating time uh, in New Jersey for voters, a lot for them to process. Uh, and work through in the next uh, months ahead.
3: This is John Katz from TV's. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCradio.com. The
6: Cats
4: Roundtable.
3: With us today is Paul Zuber, and he is with the uh, Business Council of the State of New York. And he's with us a lot lately because there's so many things that he is concerned about, uh, business people in New York moving out. Paul Zuba, what is your concern this week?
7: Well, my concern, my concern this week is is um, something that's a, I think a perfect picture of the problems that we have here in Albany um, today. Governor Hochul had a press conference, um, and in her press conference, she talked about her proposal to deal with retail theft in in New York State. So, some of the things that she's proposing is increasing penalty, criminal penalties for third party. And online um, stolen merchandise, increasing penalties for anyone who assaults a retail worker, providing additional funding to law enforcement and the uh, the district attorneys, as well as providing 25 million to create a New York State Police smash and grab enforcement unit. Now, whether or not that ultimately solves the issues revolving around retail theft, we can debate that. But that's a positive step forward. That's at least trying to find a solution to the problem. But then on the other side, and I had spoken to you about this before, we have a bill that comes out of the Senate which basically puts all the blame on the retailer for retail crime. It basically makes the retailer pay for training. It makes the retailer, it forces them to hire security guards. It forces them to put up cameras and all types of equipment. And the problem is, you know, we all want the workers who are in a retail setting to feel safe, but to then all of a sudden make it as if it's the retailer, the, the owner's fault, that retail crime is occurring is, is, is nonsensical. Um, once again, what we're going to do is if this bill were to pass, is we're going to place undue burdens on small businesses. We're going to place undue burden on even large businesses. And what are those businesses going to do? They're going to pass it on to the consumer. And quite frankly, there are federal uh, provisions and recommendations that um, OSHA has that deals with these things. I think any um, retail employer will tell you the first thing they tell their employees is if anything happens – you give them the money, or you give them the merchandise. Do not fight with somebody who comes into your into your store. But it's a perfect example of how we have one person in the governor, um, at least trying to find a solution to a problem, and then another just trying to place the burden as if it's a burden. It's it's business's fault that this is this is going on. Um, and you know, quite frankly, the reason that the legislature put that bill in is because. There is a union, the Retail Workers Union, which is putting political pressure on the legislature to introduce this bill. Um, And it's a perfect example of the problems that we're having in New York State instead of doing things that are commonsensical, doing things that have no common sense to them. And that's a real problem.
3: And there are so many problems in our city or state. And this is going to be— on top of congestion pricing which again the retailers are going to add back in new york, in new york city in the city itself the retailers are going to add back to the cost of goods and the customer is going to pay
5: for everything
7: I, absolutely and and I'll, I'll give you one more that that creates a problem for for retailers you know we we've, we've decided that we by 2035 everything is going to be electric vehicles so when you talk to the people who run the motor truck association and the people in those associations, they, will, they tell me all the time, hey, Paul, you know what the big problem for us is? And I say, what? The, the trucks weigh so much that they, can, they, can, they have to carry less payload in a truck. So therefore, maybe what one truck used to be able to, to carry merchandise um, to a retailer, it might now take two trucks to carry that, mer- that same amount of merchandise to a retailer. So what's going to happen when that occurs? Well, there's going to be two drivers. There are going to be two trucks. Guess what? The cost is going to be passed on to the retailer, who will then pass it on to the consumer. And to your point about congestion pricing, it's something that I've, I've said over and over again as I've sat on your show, is the first thing that we have to understand is that the world has changed in how business operates. You no longer need to be in New York City or New York State to do business. So if you start telling people that it's going to cost them more money to get into the city, then guess what they're going to do? They'll just work from home. They'll work from their, their, their apartment in Connecticut or their, their uh, condo in Florida. They just won't go into the city. And once again, we're, we're tying our hands behind our back. We are in a competition with every other state in the United States. We need to understand and realize we are in a competition and will we, increased costs, guess what, we lose that competition.
3: Paul Zuber and uh, Senior Vice President of the Business Council of the State of New York, thank you so much for filling in, all business people, and hopefully common sense will prevail.
7: I hope so, John, and you have a great day.
3: This is the Catch Roundtable, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us this Sunday morning is Governor David Patterson, Governor, what happened last week in the election? Well, John, whenever you have a
2: special election, and we're now talking about the 3rd Congressional District of New York, which is a Long Island district, the first thing you think about is voter recognition. And Tom Suozzi had a great deal more recognition than his his opponent. He has been a congressman. He's been the county executive. He's had other posts over the years. So the Long Island residents know Tom Swasey. What could have been a problem though is that the second most important thing in the special election is voter turnout. And the Republicans, particularly in Nassau County, turned the vote out very well. They have a man named Joe Cairo who is the county executive. Um, I actually like him. We get along very well for three hundred and sixty four days of the year. But on the fifth election day every year, uh, Joe Cairo brings people out. So the question was going to be which one of those factors uh, took hold. And I think what took hold was the fact that Tom Suozzi is now talking like a common sense Democrat. He's never really been to the left in the way that the Republicans described him in his commercial. Uh, He has at times done a few things. And this is when he was younger and And everybody, you know, can make these mistakes. He said he threw ice out of Nassau County. And um, he said that one time he said he was a member of the squad. But, you know, these are like momentary lapses. His whole career has been who he was in that campaign. And even the journalist, S.E. Cup praised him tremendously after this victory, in which not only did he win, but he wasn't going away. The other thing I think that contributed to it, John, is his opponent – she was just too, um, what I'm trying to, find, trying to find a word for it, but just too dramatic about being pro-life and uh, saying that um, she, uh, you know, agreed with people who, who, even at the expense of the wife uh, of a woman, there couldn't be any abortion. I don't think that went over very well in, in that particular area. But what I would say is, Swazi is coming on now with a number of people. Mayor Eric Adams is talking this way. Governor Kathy Hochul was really talking this way after what happened on 42nd Street. And yours truly has been talking this way for five years on your show, John. So I think um, it shows that more people are listening to Cats at Night and Cat
8: Roundtable.
3: Well, we we do have a very loud voice in there, and, and we're middle-of-the-road people. We, it's, to me, it's not the word left and right. the word right doesn't exist. It's, to me, and I think to you too, Governor, it's, it's just common sense. I mean, it really is when you have these
2: situations, these smash-and-grabs, the drugstores uh, are closing down because of this, and you just don't hear enough elected officials, regardless of what party they're in, uh, you know, reacting as angrily as the public is. But remember, it's the public. There are a whole lot more of them than there are people who are reelected. They're the ones going to the polls, and you can be a Democrat. You can be for um, uh, education. You can be for more health care services in needy areas, but you don't have to turn around and, and ignore the crime rate like um, the Secretary Mayorkas and other people in uh, in government have done, or, or look in the camera and say the economy is real strong, which I believe Mr. Buttigieg, the Transportation Secretary, said, and I'm surprised because he's usually on point. So you're right, John. Um, it, it, the, the more we get the acrimony of partisanship out of it and just talk about how we all feel in our daily lives, the better off we'll be.
3: I, I agree 110% this is a long weekend monday is uh, uh is presidents day anything else you have on your mind we have about a minute or uh, so left well i think that the presidents
2: day's uh abraham lincoln uh, we celebrated and of course uh president washington you know we we know that this is a country that had a lot of problems when it first started and was looked down upon by other countries because we uh, had slavery for the first 76 years of our uh, uh institution but that at slowly but surely we try to do the right thing and i think slowly but surely we've led the world in all phases of technology and particularly in educating our young people and we can celebrate that as george washington was one of the architects of our capacity to do that
3: governor uh Patterson, thank you for your common sense thank you for keeping putting people together instead of splitting them apart And uh, let's catch up. Happy uh, President's Day weekend, and let's catch up real soon. Happy President's Day to you as well, John.
7: The Cats Roundtable.
3: With us today is Steve Cates, uh, otherwise known as Dr. Sky. And uh, to me, Steve, you're a doctor either way. And uh, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, uh, you know, I'm looking up in the sky, and I'm saying, what am I going to look at tonight? Uh, What do you think, Steve? Well, John, we with some interesting information here on the cat's round table as last week we've
8: heard these claims of russia having nuclear weapons in space so what we're going to do is identify whether this is fact or fiction so what's the story behind this well alarms over russians potential nuclear weapons in space the chairman of the house intelligence committee mike turner as many people may know revealed to congress quote a serious national security threat and i continue as he said he quoted He is quoted as saying, destabilizing foreign military capability, end quote. Well, this was all revealed to some members of Congress in those secret skiffs. But let's talk a little bit more about this. You and I have been talking about this on our show and your show here on the Cats Roundtable for a long time. We find out recently, John, that great concern exists that Russia has launched two so-called secret satellites, one called Cosmos 2575 and another one called Cosmos 2574. And what these are doing, they're actually lurking and stalking some of our super-secret, as we call them, surveillance satellites. One of them's called USA-245. Now, does this mean that they actually put nuclear weapons in space? Because, John, this would be a big violation of a treaty that was developed back in 1967 and signed by Russia and other nations of the world. This violation of the Outer Space Treaty would say that no nukes are allowed in space or the moon. So what say you, John? Could, could this be some kind of a alarmist thing, that we're not sending enough aid to the Ukrainians,
3: or what, or who knows? Uh, what, what say you? Well, what I uh, uh, say is that there's you know, the, the nobody oh, in war, and we are at war in some ways, I mean, there are a lot of countries involved. Nobody ever tells the truth. I, right. You know, the, the Palestinians are not telling the truth, Iran is not telling the truth, Russia is not telling the truth, Ukraine is not telling the truth. So, did Ronald Reagan tell the truth when he says we had space space uh, laser weapons in uh, forty years ago? No, he didn't nope. tell the truth nope you're so, right uh and I talked to uh, general uh, uh Wesley Clark uh, uh, before and he says uh mm-hmm. and even if they have uh, some other speculation is they have hyper missiles, and right. that even if they have hyper missiles if they shoot doesn't mean there's no The the Russian-made missiles are going to shoot straight.
8: You're right, John, and here's what some people think. I mean, here's what some people think this could be. I mean, this gets technical, and in the time we have this morning, some space and aerospace experts believe this could be the beginnings of something called a fractional orbital bombardment system. Very complicated uh, term, but simply what that means is that if they do have the capability to deploy nuclear weapons in space, Many of our radar systems over the years have always watched from an attack coming from the north. But in this FOB system, they could actually send missiles into our atmosphere from the direction of the south. Or this could be simply an orbital nuclear delivery platform, which obviously I doubt, which they could fire missiles from space down on the earth, or what they call a new orbital anti-satellite type system. So either way, not only are the Russians involved in this kind of stuff, I'm sure we are too, China has two spy satellites. We talked about this before, one called the Shijian-23, and actually it released some strange object. We're not sure what it is in space. But let's not discount the United States in all this, John, because our race in the hole, sadly to say, in space if warfare begins, might be our X-37B, that little secret spy plane or little secret shuttle that's been orbiting the Earth for so long. I think it's a fascinating subject, and we'll keep you posted on that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're, you're you're
3: right there, but uh, I'm not. I, I I don't think Russia loves to uh, threaten. I don't think they want a nuclear war. I don't think they want to really continue the war. Uh, in Absolutely. my personal opinion, is uh, uh, they're looking to keep whatever they can keep and uh, and stop the war. Absolutely, John. And quickly, a couple of other news
8: stories as we wrap up here. Solar radiation storm continues. From all the big solar sunspots and big things happening on the sun, nothing really dangerous at this point. But it does, of course, wipe out temporarily radio signals around the world. And then the mystery that we talk about in the week, you know, the Voyager 1 was launched way back in 1977. John, it's the farthest spacecraft from the Earth. It's 15 billion miles from the Earth. And it takes 23 hours if you want to send a signal to wake it up. But right now, the NASA and JPL scientists are saying there's something wrong, they think, with the flight data system. It's a computer that may be corrupted. So this may be the end, sadly, of Voyager 1. But it was the first spacecraft, John, to ever use what we call volatile memory. And simply, that means memory that requires power and a power supply. But that's an amazing story. But if we wrap it up, John, in the live sky, we talk only 50 days to the big eclipse, whether it's total for everybody or partial. You can learn so much more by going to my Dr. Sky Experience, where we have an eclipse update at wabcradio.com. So much to talk about, John, and so many exciting things. Always a privilege and honor to be here with you and the great audience around the nation on the CATS Roundtable.
3: Steve Cates, thank you so much for bringing our uh, listeners up to date, and uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you so much. Have a good morning. Thank you. With us today is Ambassador George Sonis, he is a New Yorker. He uh, was uh, uh, a businessman in New York. He, he always got involved in politics. These uh, people loved him. And then one day, he woke up and got offered the ambassadorship to to Greece, uh, where his forefathers are from. Ambassador Tunis, good morning. How are you? Good morning, John. How are you, my friend? That was. Uh, must have been a real uh, surprise and must have been a real uh, that uh, the the president of the United States has offered you the ambassadorship uh, to, to Greece and the, the land of your, uh, your forefathers and your grandfathers, and uh, it must have made uh, your family proud.
0: It certainly uh, did. You know, my mom and dad grew up in a very small village in the mountains. No running water, no electricity in their houses, and there was an outhouse on the other side of the barn. So to have their son return as the personal representative of the president and as a U.S. ambassador is, you know, something of great pride my family um, and my community, but it, it, it's an incredible honor for me.
3: How is the transition? You're, you're an American. You lived in Long Island all your life. You lived in Pennsylvania, living in Athens. Uh, you tell me about it.
0: I got to tell you, the, the weather's fantastic. The food is unbelievable. The Mediterranean diet lives up to its reputation. The people are incredibly friendly. I think the United States enjoys the highest favorability rate amongst any country that is in Greece. They love the United States. They love Americans. And because we have shared values, when our government was formed, it was based on self-determination, the freedoms and the values and the principles that were born in in ancient Greece, democracy. The ties, the values, the priorities, the ethos that exist between the greatest democracy in the world, the United States, and the first democracy in the world, Greece, are something that is still incredibly meaningful to the people of Greece.
3: And when I saw you uh, last week when you're— In uh, New York you look the healthiest I've ever seen you in 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 20 years and you lost 85 pounds it must be that that Mediterranean diet a lot of olive oil a lot of fish
0: well as as my friend John Katzimati says if God made it eat it and uh, that's what I'm doing Uh, I'm eating some uh, good wholesome food and I'm moving around one of my favorite things to do is walk out of the embassy and just walk in all the neighborhoods, meet people, get to know people. And, you know, I think the best diplomacy is the one that starts with a, a handshake and, and is, is one that's three feet apart. So uh, getting to know as many Greeks as I can has not only been good for my health, just walking around, but it really gives me an understanding of what people in Greece and people in Europe uh, are concerned about. And, you know, it helps when we're trying to act in concert, in cooperation together to solve some of the challenges we have today.
3: Now, I understand that uh, Prime Minister, Mr. Takis, uh, is doing a fine job and cooperating with America. And you're the American ambassador, so you have to work with him every day on uh, various things. How does it I mean, are the relations good between Greece and America? The highest they have ever
0: been, and you know, this is a prime minister that was Harvard, Stanford for a master's, Harvard Business School. He worked in the business community as a banker and investment banker, and you know, this is someone who has the brain of a banker but the heart of a social worker. Believes in the transatlantic relationship, believes in NATO, believes in the EU but understands that Greece's future is completely tied to its relationship, both economic and national security, with the United States.
3: This is John Katz from TV's. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCradio.com.
7: The Cats Roundtable.
5: And joining us now is the mayor of the great city of New York, my friend, Mayor Eric Adams. Mr. Mayor, great to have you here.
9: Always, Rita, always good being on with you and just giving people updates of this amazing uh, city we're
5: I have to get your reaction, Mr. Mayor, to this horrible shooting that just happened in Kansas City at the Super Bowl celebration for the Chiefs. Twenty-two people shot, at least one person dead. It is just such terrible news, and it's scary as it happened in a very crowded outdoor celebration. And New York, of course, has many big outdoor events your thoughts, Mayor Adams.
9: And it's, it's really uh, heartbreaking when you see a celebratory atmosphere with people, are, you know, actually celebrating with children and families of a great sporting event, and then to have individuals, what appears to be two gunmen, exchange gunfire. Twenty-two people died. One person uh, lost uh, their life uh, due to this. And our hearts goes out to the families. And this is why we have been really dogmatic about removing guns off our streets. Uh, since being May, I think we removed over 13,000 firearms off our street. Uh, we have to get these illegal guns off the streets of our country.
5: Also, how complex is it too? It's scary. It's very hard to control. There was a lot of security there, but it's also a very difficult scenario. People are nervous with so many threats all over the world.
9: No, so true. And when you think about The amount of security that was at the celebration, you know, just really reinforces that when you're dealing with people who are destined to bring violence, you have to make sure that you're able to apprehend them as quickly as possible. And I think that, I take my hat off to the law enforcement officers. You could only imagine, you at a celebration, you're hearing gunfight, fire, people are running in different directions. Those responding officers are unclear if they're dealing with a terrorist threat or if they're dealing with uh, just a dispute. They have to make that quick decision. It just shows you the challenge that law enforcement officers are dealing with across the
3: entire country. This is John Katz from TV's. If you want to hear the full interview go to wabcradio.com. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. What is this Sunday morning? is Governor Hochul of the great state of New York, and uh, she has uh, done some rem- remarkable things lately, and and uh, she wants our citizens to know. Uh, Governor Hochul, uh, you've been working very, very hard. Uh, tell us about the great things uh, Uh, that uh, are happening.
10: Well, good morning, John, and I and I appreciate this opportunity to once again speak to your listeners who are very concerned about the same issues that keep me up at night. And my number one job is to keep people safe, to deal with public safety, to make the investments, to have enough police officers on our streets, to invest in anti-gun initiatives. But we worked very, very hard with me convening a group of state, local, and federal officers to be tracking and sharing information. We've done an amazing job driving down gun violence and shootings and murders. But John, I'm not going to rest until people stop committing even the retail theft. And this is what I announced at our Crime Analysis Center a few days ago was this concerted effort, never done before in any other state, where I'm pulling together the same teams that help us drive down the gun violence and dedicating that energy, those resources, our money, to trying to stop this whole specter of the small bodegas and are being robbed all the way up to the luxury stores on Fifth on and Madison. No matter where you go, we're starting to see a spike in retail theft, and we're going after the online resellers. When you have an organized group, John, that's got young people out there, you know, sweeping the shelves and loading it up, and now they're selling it online, so we think there's more responsibility there that they can help eradicate this problem. So we're doing everything we can, more money for DAs, more money for police officers, but I know that's a big concern of people, and mine as well, and I'm taking it very, very seriously. It's a very big concern
3: because of the violence. And, and some of these criminals have been arrested 17 times, 20 times, and they're not being put away into jail. And some of them, they're not, they shouldn't be allowed to live among civilized human beings. And our assembly and our state senate should realize it that after, pick a number five crimes, 10 crimes, 20 crimes, 25 crimes, at some place, I think it's important. Uh, that New York State takes care of it so more people are not leaving. Uh, Uh, Can I say something
10: to that, John? John, you are so right on that point. And I want to just say one more thing, that after we changed the bail laws from the way they had been watered down in the past administration with the legislature, and that's last year we spoke about this, I held the budget up one month late because I said I'm not leaving Albany this year until we take meaningful reforms to fix the bail laws, give the discretion back to the judges, make sure that more crimes are covered for bail, including hate crimes, which had been removed, if you can believe that, with the rise in hate crimes we're experiencing. But also, when someone does steal once, twice, three times, once it gets to that level, the judges do have the discretion. The DAs have the ability to hold these people it's called harm on harm once you've done it once you are now in a different category if you still have an open case pending so that's what's frustrating to me we changed the law and i'm seeing different application of this from upstate to downstate so i need everyone downstate where we're having the the major problem to be aware that the power is there for the DAs and the judges to do the right thing. And I just did with District Attorney Melinda Katz from Queens, who has, who's standing there with me. Our other DAs are standing with me on this initiative. So I need the legislature to support more penalties for people who assault retail workers. I want to get that changed in the law, as well as the money I'm putting for stores to buy cameras and our joint operation to do this coordination. I have a holistic Broad-based approach, but I do need the legislature to get it over the finish line, and that's—I think—that'll make a big difference once we can get this done during this session.
3: Well, we we all agree with you. The other our big item that uh, is coming up, and it looks like it's going to be shoved down everybody's throat, is what the MTA is doing. They plan to raise subway prices another twenty percent because uh, they're losing. Uh, I think seven hundred million dollars a year from crime that people don't never pay, to, never pay. They just walk in. And uh, in addition, uh, congestion pricing is going to happen at the same time. So it's it, it, the consumers are going to be hit double.
10: John, no increases go up without coming through me. Let me just be very clear. Last year, RMTA, MTA, because of disinvestment in the past, had to be basically saved. It was heading off the cliff. The fiscal cliff. And so I created a whole mechanism to bring in more money for the operating costs of the MTA. Part of it, I demanded that they find savings $400 million in savings. We had some money from the state. We have money dedicated from future casino proceeds, which will not come for a few years, but that money partially is going to go there to help them. And we also allowed for just a a very modest increase in fares, which had not been raised in some time. We're not going to any major increases to bail out the system any longer. We cannot keep doing that. So I'm going to keep working with the MTAs to find efficiencies and say, we're trying to encourage people to take the trains and subways. That's how we'll deal with the crisis we have where the streets are so crowded. And I live in the city. I live in Manhattan. And to walk the streets and, first of all, have all this chaos that we have with all the bikes and the motorized vehicles, the bicycles, that's one thing. But all the congestion has resulted in a slower response time when you or any of your neighbors would need some police officers to respond or firefighters. And that's one of the challenges we have with the intense intensely congested situation we have in places like Manhattan. So that's one of the problems we're trying to get at. Make it easier for law enforcement and first responders to get on the sites so we don't lose anyone's life because they were jammed up in a traffic situation, which is the likes of which you don't see anywhere else in the world.
3: Now, you brought up the word bikes. And to cross the street, Governor, I live in Manhattan all my life. You take your life in your hand even to get out of a taxi cab because these bikes are going both ways. Oh, if the whole street is going one way, some of them are going the other way yeah. and end up hitting passengers. I, I, what I've said to some of the police officers is, if they're going the wrong way and putting people's life in danger, then maybe they should confiscate the bike.
10: Well, John, this is a real problem we have in our city As so many people are relying on people to deliver their groceries and deliver their dinner and deliver everything now, which is, you know, really one of the outgrowths of the pandemic where people just relied on ordering online or calling up and having everything delivered. But that being said, this is a quality of life issue in our city. and the quality of life in New York City for the people, for what they're paying in taxes. And I'm not raising taxes this year once again, John. You can tell your listeners that. I'm fighting that. But for what we pay, we deserve to have outstanding quality of life. And it's compromised when you have to worry about getting hit by one of these bicycles or these motorized vehicles. So here's what we need to do. We need the city council to step up and do what they can do to manage this, local law enforcement and others to enforce it. If they need a law changed in our state legislature... I am very happy to promote that because public safety also includes not just not getting shot, not just getting your your, Apple, your phone stolen out of your pocket when you're on the subway. It also means you're not going to get hit by one of these errant motorists or bicyclists.
3: Anything else who, you, we have about a minute left that you would like to get off your chest that you think all, all New Yorkers should know?
10: Well, one thing, John, is I know there's a lot of concern about our police officers these days. And you and I have seen each other at various events to support the police and, and their efforts. And, uh, you know, they have, they have a, real challenges out on the streets. And that attack in Times Square a few weeks ago still shakes to me my core that our men and women in uniform have to worry about whether or not someone is going to assault them. And I've been very clear that you do not have the right to lay your hand on a police officer in the state of New York. But if you do, there will be consequences. And DAs need to make sure that they are going before a judge and saying that this is a crime. It's a crime we don't tolerate. We need to have bail so these people are not put back out on the streets right afterward as has happened, and I'm proud of the bail law changes we made, but again, they have to be enforced and followed because we do not want the Wild West out there. We want our law enforcement to be able to do their jobs. We want people to feel safe, and John, as you and I have spoken about many times, that is my number one priority, so I appreciate the opportunity for people to hear that directly from me. As you know, I've been married to a guy who was a federal prosecutor United States attorney for 30 years my, my son is a prosecutor, and we believe in criminal justice and giving people their their just day in court and making sure they have all their rights are followed and never trampled on by anyone in law, law enforcement or in the court system. That is important, but also we have to make sure that those who are sworn to protect us are also protected on our streets. Governor Hoko,
3: thank you so much for coming on uh, this Sunday morning. Thank you for your, your helping the consumer, helping business people, and we look forward to some additional talks. And God bless you, and God bless New York.
10: Thank you very much. Great to talk to you again this morning.
3: Thank you for being with us for the Round Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Round Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.